Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. You know, we're going to be talking about going to every single side of the table that you can imagine. You know, she's been an investor. She's a, on the private equity side, on the venture capital side. So not only investing in numbers, investing in people. Now an operator, too. She's building something really remarkable. And she's also been a world traveler. You know, she's a, operated companies in, in Asia, in Europe. Uh, and again, you know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, and all of that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jacqueline Van Den Ente. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So originally born in The Hague, but uh, you traveled quite a bit growing up. So how was life growing up? Give us a walk through memory lane. Yeah, my dad was a shell engineer, so I grew up very internationally. From the age of one, I lived in Australia uh, until the age of six. And then after that, four years in Syria, uh, which is in the Middle East. Uh, so I had a pretty adventurous youth and consider that a major yeah, source of wealth. It's been really cool to grow up with a much more global perspective than if I had grown up simply in the Netherlands. Now, in your case, you know, something that is really remarkable is not only you grew up um, traveling everywhere, but then also you've been traveling ever since. Now, I find that uh, this perhaps has given you an advantage because when you travel like that, I mean, new places, new friends, you know, you, 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 get, you get comfortable with the uncertainty to a certain degree. So how do you think that has helped you and that has shaped who you are? Well, you say that, well, you get comfortable with the uncertainty. So after that, I lived in Peru, Norway, Kyrgyzstan, and the Philippines. And I started my career formally in private equity, but after four years, really wanted to be on the startup side of things. And I got an offer to build a company in the Philippines. And I think most people would probably not have taken that opportunity to move to the other side of the world, having absolutely no idea where the Philippines was or what it was about. Um, but for me, I was very comfortable packing my job and moving to Manila. And I kind of feel comfortable everywhere, wherever I live in the world. And I think that yeah, brings a certain flexibility, adaptability to whatever circumstance you're in. And, and we'll talk about this experience just in a little bit because. I want to talk about how you enter the whole, you know, venture world. You know, that was via decline consultant. So how did you, you know, come up with the idea of, hey, you know, I'm not going to do corporate life. I mean, this was back in 2008. I mean, in 2008, the world of entrepreneurship was still a little bit green there in Europe, you know, uh, even in the U.S., you know, in New York, I remember that the, the ecosystem was, was, was still developing with companies like DoubleClick you know, paving the way for everyone else. But in Europe, it was almost non-existent, you know, and obviously being European myself, I know the pressure that we have from parents, especially back then to either become a doctor, uh, a consultant, you know, at a, at a big uh, McKinsey or, or BCG or a lawyer or a banker. Now, in your case, you decided to do it yourself. That's pretty ballsy. So, uh, so how did that opportunity come about? 
Yeah, a little bit in context. Is I did this when I was a student. So it wasn't sort of my first formal career. Actually, I do very much, as you described, come from a parent. My parents were in corporate. My mom is a lawyer. So my family did not have an entrepreneurial context at all. I did actually, after the Kleine Consultant, which is a nonprofit student-run strategy consulting organization, it has few hundred students working in across different locations in the Netherlands every year. I did consider like really starting forming, formally starting my career as a founder, but I didn't ultimately because I pursued the safe route, which was indeed as an analyst in uh, private equity. So very much came from that corporate background, like, oh, you're supposed to start your career in a, in a, in a more of a structured environment. And it took me quite a while to get back to entrepreneurship after that. But I am somebody who has constantly has business ideas, right? So the clinical Zilton was one of these ideas that sort of fell from the sky with an idea and all. And it was the first time that I actually translated an idea into a thriving organization that is now 15 years old. Now, in this case, for you, uh, you were alluding to it. I mean, the 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 formal job that you got was HAL Investments uh, on the private equity side. So, what kind of um, structure did that give you, as you were alluding to? And then also, what did you learn about pattern recognition and and being able to see what was good from what was not so good from an investment perspective? Yeah, it's a very good question. Because I think the essence of investing is pattern recognition. Um, what I loved about whole investments was what you learn as an investor is uh, first principles thinking. So in consultancy, what you learn is to apply a template, the issue tree, to different kinds of business problems. But uh, investing is not about doing things in a certain format. It's about having original ideas, non-conforming ideas, in fact. So when I entered at Hall Investments, um, I did not have a background in finance. I didn't know what private equity was. And everybody else who worked in the company had studied like literally rocket science or nuclear physics. Like, I, so I was definitely the least, <laughs> the least highest IQ in the company, probably. And they didn't tell you what to do. So basically on day one, I got to the office, I found a huge pile of books and I was supposed to read it. And then they said, make us evaluation model. And nobody explained how to make evaluation model. But I got to sit down and think for myself, how do I determine the value of this company? And at some point I got sent to Sweden to do due diligence on a company. And I didn't know what due diligence was. But I basically ended up in Stockholm thinking, okay, what do I need to know about this company? So what I've learned in private equity is thinking for yourself rather than thinking about what you should. A lot of people starting off their careers are very much concerned with what is expected from them, from their boss. And I think in Hall Investments, I really learned to think from what do I think? What's my own opinion? Because that was what you were paid for. Now, in this case, you were there for a little bit over three years. So anyone looking at this would have thought that, hey, things are going, you know, very well. So why would Jacqueline, you know, take a look at the greener pastures and, uh, you know, perhaps entertain something from Rocket Internet? So how did that come about? I really learned a lot in my private equity career, but at the same time, always felt like I'm on the wrong side of the table. 
I would work a lot with entrepreneurs and with CEOs. And I saw that they were building their own companies. And I'm a builder. Like ever since the clinical consultant, I really fell in love with taking an idea from nothing to something. So I literally told my friends, if next year I'm still working with Hall Investments, you really have to kick my ass because I need to get out of that career. And I actually changed my password at some point to Startup 2013. So I would remind myself every single day of that career ambition. So I'm one of my piece of advice there is also, if you want something, say it out loud, because I started telling people about this startup dream. And then somebody said, well, hey, you should talk to Rocket Internet. And Rocket Internet said to me, well, would you, you know, would you aspire uh, going abroad to build a company for us? And I thought, you know, sure, why not? So uh, when I, I sort of was picturing going to, you know, to a Berlin or a Silicon Valley or something. And then he said, how about you go to the Philippines? Which was a bit of a mindset shift of like, okay, wait a minute, where is the Philippines? And uh, is this a good idea? Uh, but I figured if you don't have a go, you'll never know. I was single at the time. I was 28. Uh, so I quit my job. And within a month, I was living in Manila and building a online real estate startup. And I guess before you even, you know, enter these discussions with Rocket Internet, how was that startup dream that you were alluding to? How did that start to, to evolve and develop to the point that it sounds like you meeting Rocket Internet was the right time because you were already incubating, you know, that thought. So it was like, uh, OK, let's go. Let's pack the bags. Let's just like execute on this startup dream. So whatever that was going to be, and in this case, it ended up being like the silo equivalent, you know, there in South in Southeast Asia. but but for you, that startup dream, how did that incubate? Yeah, it's a good question. I have had always I have had ideas. I think on average, once a month, I have a business idea. And then typically it comes with a name with it. It sort of literally falls from the sky. So and then I always get this huge boost of energy when I see that idea, I see a really clear vision. Like on Day one that I came up with the idea for the clinical consultant, I already pictured what it would look like today. And today it is even bigger than I could have, have, have had imagined. So I think that's one thing I'm naturally gifted with ideas. And then secondly, with getting people enthusiastic about my ideas. I think the other factor there is sort of a freedom drive. And I think that's something that characterizes a lot of entrepreneurs that ultimately what you're looking for is freedom, not working for somebody else, but really being able to build your own dream. And I see entrepreneurship sort of as constructing your own palace, right? Like every day, whether you're going uphill or downhill, whether things are doing, going well or not, you're laying another brick of your own castle. And then at some point you hire people and those people are laying bricks for your own castle as well. And like, how cool is it that you get to build something permanent? In my case, something that has impact and that will last far beyond you. I mean, I haven't been operational in the clinical consultant for 12 years and yet it has grown to a phenomenal, it's really a household brand in the Netherlands in strategy consulting. And that's, I think, wanting that freedom and wanting to make a little bit of a lasting impact, having something that you leave behind were, I think, very sort of core drivers of my entrepreneurial motivation. Now, for you and for the people that are listening, I mean, Rocket Internet is like a, 
like a machine uh, incubator. You know, they just say roll out uh, teams with great ideas, big markets uh, on stuff that they've seen working maybe on other companies. So they basically, you know, uh, do it in different regions. Now, in this case for you, you, you pack the bags, you arrive there in the Philippines. How was that for you? I mean, that's probably like a culture shock. I mean, what were some of the things that you guys needed to do to to assemble uh, the team, the company, and and really to get going? Yeah, <laughs> it was a pretty crazy experience. I brought uh, two interns uh, with me from the Netherlands. We landed in Manila. Had no idea where to start. We got ourselves literally sort of a picnic table in the office of Lazada, which was another rocket internet company that was already operational. I think. We by spent- the way, we, we we've had the founders also on the podcast, so uh, oh, so cool. good stuff. Lazada. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, we did strategy for I think a week, thinking about how are we going to do this, and then I think we literally threw our strategy in the in the bin and just started executing, and that was really rocket internet was all about excellence and execution. So we started hiring where we had no idea how to hire the right people. Because in the Netherlands, when you go to university, that means something, right? Everybody who went to university has an academic quality. In the Philippines, having gone to university or college means absolutely nothing. There's this huge, wild range of like differences in quality. And then also, secondly, we had no idea what somebody's work experience meant because we didn't really, you know, understand what those companies were doing. So it was hilarious. The first couple of weeks, we uh, just put up a job ad and we got hundreds of applicants. But the quality was terrible. We would have people who would be like, oh, sorry, I can't come. But is it okay if my mom comes to the interview? We had uh, people who wouldn't show up for the interviews. We had people that we hired who would then sh- would, would, who would not show up for the first day of work. We had people who we hired who would leave after three weeks. We had somebody who during the sales interview actually went to the toilets and never returned. <laughs> so it was like wild, wild, wild in learning how to hire the right people uh, in the Philippines initially. So I think that when you get to um, experience that in, in such a challenging way, you know, what, what, what would you say that you've gotten out of um, perhaps learning how to hire the right people for the right reasons at the right time for the business or for any business? I think the, a common mistake that I made when in the Philippines is that you hire for people who can do the job. Uh, at Rocket Internet, there was a lot of pressure. We had to scale up within within half a year. I think we had 30 people on the payroll. And so there were these sales seats and I would just hire anybody who had any kind of sales experience or could do the job. And we ended up hiring all the wrong people, having culture issues, having performance issues and having a difficult time sort of setting that right. And what I've learned is that nothing is more important than hiring the very best people that you can. So I use this mental framework where I score people on a scale of one to five, where three is uh, somebody who can do the job. And my rule for myself is never, ever hire a three. Never hire somebody who can just do the job. Always hire for excellence. Even if you pay them more, they're going to be 3x, 5x the value of somebody who can just do the job. And with my current company, Carbon Equity, we've really lived that philosophy to the core. And we're immensely popular in a time where everybody's having difficulty hiring. 
on average, we get 300 to 500 applicants per job vacancy. The reason being that we have a team of A players and other A players want to work with A players. So it's not just important for the performance of the individual, but it's super important in building a high performance culture in your company. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So we were we were talking about it earlier. I mean, La Moody, you know, was essentially the silo uh, there in in Saudi in Southeast Asia. I mean, you guys pushed this for about three years. Uh, and uh, how how did the company evolve? I mean, how did you guys uh, capitalize the business? What did that look like when it came to to really scaling this up? Because I mean, you were saying that within half a year, you already had thirty people on the payroll. So. How did you guys go about capitalizing the business too? Yeah, so that was the nice thing of Rocket Internet. Rocket Internet, basically, uh, they, as you ex properly explained, they copy-pasted successful e-commerce models, successful internet businesses to other parts of the world. So Rocket Internet would do the fundraising and they would hire managing directors and CEOs and founders like myself who would then build that business in a country from scratch. So we didn't actually have any issues in uh, having to raise funding for the company. In my time, we scaled from one to 100 people and, and it was just really Rocket Internet was throwing a lot of money at it. And nowadays, the good thing is the company is still very much alive. I think it has two, 300 people in the Philippines, probably. So we're one of the few businesses that survived. I think of all of the businesses that Rocket Internet founded in the Philippines in the year that I started, I think 30% probably survived of those. And, and Lamudi was one of them. And the company even ended up getting acquired by yeah. du Dubizol Group. Is that right? It got acquired by a European property group, EPG. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Now, in this case, you know, like out of having been present, you know, in in a company where it goes through the full cycle, no, where you go there, pack the bags, you know, different country, everything, you ramp this thing up to tons of employees in no time. I guess what kind of visibility, you know, did that give you into the full cycle of a business? 
Well, a lot. I think what was really one of the great privileges of working in uh, Lamudi is that I got to, so I didn't see it through all the way until IPO. I at some point stopped, but I saw it through from one to a hundred people in scale. And what was really cool is two things. I think one, uh, your role as a CEO changes. So I see the life of a company in several phases. And the first phase, zero to 15 people, is like what I call the hustle phase. And this is a phase where as a CEO, you're doing everything yourself. You're doing your hands on everything everything. And then 15 to, let's say, 40 people, this is where you start to have your initial layer of management. And you start to try to delegate more and more and start to become more structured and repetitive in your processes. And the phase after that, like 50 people plus, is really where you get into the scale phase, where it's all about replication. And you, at some point, don't actually know everybody in your company anymore. So what I've learned, and which is a great benefit to now again starting my new company, is that you already know how your role will evolve and how you should anticipate uh, that evolution. The second thing that I learned in Lamudi was that the entrepreneurial journey is full of ups and downs. Uh, and when you are a first-time entrepreneur, I think very often we get caught up in, you know, when things are hard, uh, it feels like you're in an existential situation that the company might fail, that the world might end. And having had that perspective of going through that roller coaster uh, several times before, you now know that ups and downs are part of the journey. Some days you're walking uphill, some days you're rolling down. And the only thing that you need to do to get through that is to keep on walking. You simply have to keep on moving forward. And you should expect that the moment that things are doing well, it will go down at some point. But also in the moment, say you're in deep shit, you know, as long as you keep on walking and doing the right things, you will get out of that. And I think that perspective helps me navigates the mental roller coaster of building a company from scratch again. So the next stop for you was true money there in Philippines. It sounds like uh, Philippines kept knocking, you know, all the way until 2019 or so. So why do you, you know, decide to take on the CEO role in true money? Yeah, so I really fell in love with the Philippines. Uh, the slogan of the Philippines is, it's more fun in the Philippines. And nothing was ever more true. I loved the people, I really loved working there. Uh, so that's why I stayed in the Philippines. True Money approached me to become CEO of this big fintech company. It was a team of 350 people when I entered, uh, up to 500. And the opportunity that it presented for me was to really lead a company at a very different level, somewhere between scale-up and sort of corporate company. And again, that evolution of CEO is from hustle phase, doing absolutely everything yourself, to starting to delegate in the scale-up phase to being in a large 500-person type company, as a CEO, you cannot do anything yourself. So the only way that you can be effective is by hiring the right people, putting them in the right place, and giving them trust and direction and motivation and guidance. That's only you can only be effective through other people. And that was a, that was a very valuable uh, learning experience at True Money. So it sounds like venture capital is what brought you back to, to Amsterdam, to the Netherlands. And um, 
going to the other side of the table. I mean, you had been now an operator for quite a bit. So what what made you think that you were going to like now going to the other side of the table? But it was the first time that you really experienced the other side of the table as a venture capitalist. Because, I mean, before it was just numbers driven on the private equity side. This time, it was all about people. How was that for you? Yeah, so this opportunity quite randomly landed in my lap. I was very happy in my role at True Money, uh, but I had uh, several years ago, I had pitched a startup idea to a VC fund, Peak Capital. And at some point, they were looking for a new partner for their fund, somebody with both entrepreneurial and investment experience. So they asked me to join their fund and for me to come back to Amsterdam. On one hand, that sounded like a amazing opportunity. Peak is one of the best VCs in uh, the Benelux region in Europe. Uh, I would get a partner title right away, so that was kind of amazing. And it was a really good way to get to know the European uh, startup landscape. What I kind of skipped in my decision-making there was, uh, do I have a dream of being a VC investor? And my view is that being an investor is almost the opposite of being an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur has ideas, uh, is a storyteller, uh, constantly uh, pitches uh, their ideas, and is a builder. And an investor is somebody who facilitates. A good investor is a thinker, has the macro view instead of the detailed view. A good investor is a very good listener. And then is a very good advisor and facilitator, but you're not the builder. So for me, ultimately being in this role as a VC was pretty frustrating because I spoke to so many entrepreneurs and felt like, hey, I'm not living my dream. Uh, They are living my dream and ultimately sort of also helped me realize I need to get back to entrepreneurship. That said, VC investing was indeed sort of like the polar opposite of private equity. Private equity is really sort of making decisions based on spreadsheets. And in VC, it's all about, do I believe in you as an entrepreneur? And so it comes much more down to intuition and gut feel of whether you, yeah, whether you think somebody is a, is a good entrepreneur, because team is one of the biggest sort of success factors in whether companies make it or not. That's amazing. So then as you were thinking about, hey, these people are living my dream, I want to go and get my own dream. How did that process, uh, how was that like, you know, for you to end up landing on carbon equity? You know, how was that incubation and thought process until you were like, I think, I think this is it. I had the idea for carbon equity even before joining Peak as a partner. And that came from one sort of a reawakening of my concern about climate change. I read the book, uh, The Sixth Extinction in 2019, which talks about the major extinction events in the history of the planet. And she details how climate change and biodiversity loss that in the past five major extinctions have played out over tens of thousands of years in uh, now are playing out in a time span of 300 years. And we see anybody is seeing the climate change with their own eyes in a super rapid fashion. And that helped me understand that, okay, climate change is really the number one biggest 
problem to solve in the coming years, but also one of the biggest opportunities. Because in the next 30 years, we need to transform our economy from fully fossil fuel addicted to entirely fossil free. So the technological innovation that we're going to see is really unparalleled and might be even a bigger transformation than the whole digital transformation. So I want to spend the next 30 years in climate change. And I ask myself the question, how do I really move the needle on climate change with capital? And that ultimately led to the idea of carbon equity, where and carbon equity you make it possible for private individuals to invest in some of the world's most innovative climate technologies, carbon-free cement, plant-based proteins, giant batteries, you name it, any solution that we need to decarbonize the economy. And instead of investing in uh, single companies like you would do in a crowdfunding platform, Carbon Equity allows you to invest alongside the world's best professional investors, uh, let's say an Al Gore or Bill Gates, who invest on your behalf. And instead of investing in a single company, you're investing in a portfolio of 20 to 200 companies. And in this way, we want to unlock billions of private capital to accelerate the climate transition whilst making thousands or tens of thousands of people shareholders of the net zero economy. So how does the business model work there? I mean, how do you guys make money? Yeah, so Carbon Equity is a climate venture capital and private equity fund investing platform. So we don't do direct investments. We invest in these funds and then open up access to private individuals, which normally they would not have. Typically, you need 5 million euros to invest in a single fund. And Carbon Equity brings that down in, in ultimately to 10,000 euros. Our business model is simply to charge a percentage of the capital that you invest. So we charge between 0.4 and 0.85% of uh, the capital that you invest on an annual basis. And that's our business model. And how much capital have you guys raised to date for the business, for carbon equity? For carbon equity, 9 million euros. And obviously raising this money now, having been on every single side of the table possible, you know, gave you a good understanding as to who you wanted to bring in and why. So why did you bring the investors that you brought? Yeah, great question. I think we started, we did funding in three phases. Phase one was angel investors. And what we really looked for, because Carbon Equity is an investment platform, so it's very high trust and it's also relatively sophisticated. So in our angels, we really look for people who are very high profile were very high trust and had a big network, which could help us literally find more customers. Uh, so that was phase one. Phase two was a couple of venture capital funds joined. And there we looked for people who were really sort of aligned with our mission and who could help us get through the go-to-market phase. And we just raised, this is still pre-market, formal market announcement, but we just raised $6 million from a French uh, leading fintech fund. And the reason why we opted for them was, one, they understood we had built a relationship over the past two years. So I had by far the best relationship with them over any other VC. Secondly, they understood our business like nobody else. They had looked at all of the competitors in this space and really understood what we were doing. And three, 
uh, we really like that they're fully fintech focused because what we do is all about distribution integrations with banks, pension players, insurance players, etc., to distribute the carbon equity products. And they really understand how to do a B2C fintech play in a regulated market. So those were the reasons why we got these people on board. And then now in terms of the scope and size of carbon equity today, anything that you feel comfortable sharing, like number of employees or anything you know, on the platform, what can you sure. share with us? Yeah, so we raised over 150 million uh, euros in the past uh, one and a half to two years uh, through the platform. We have over 600 customers, uh, both big and small. So we have people who are investing like 10K, but we also have people investing 10 million. Uh, so the whole scale of uh, customers. We have a team of 25, more or less, uh, which consists of engineers and developers. We have people on the investment team. We have people in marketing and sales. And we have people on regulatory risk and compliance, which is also very important as a regulated business. And currently, we're in the phase uh, with the Series A funding of full-on internationalization. Uh, so... We're also looking for people to join us in other countries with a primary focus on the Nordics and Germany in Europe. Wow. Now, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of carbon equity is fully realized. What does that world look like? I'm going to give two answers to that. So like a near-term dimension of, let's say, 10 years, you know, 10-year sort of vision for carbon equity would be that we are the global go-to impact private equity platform with 10 billion in assets under management, where people can go to help solve the world's largest global challenges with their money, whether it's climate change or health or education or financial inclusion, whilst making money for themselves. That would be a near-term vision. If carbon equity ultimately is successful in mobilizing billions, if not trillions down the end and down the line in private capital to fund climate solutions, we would live in a world where we have full clean technology, where carbon emissions are under control and in balance uh, with uh, what we what we need. So basically, we don't have a climate change problem and we live in a cleaner healthier and more abundant world where instead of relying on really dirty air polluting fossil fuels we have infinite cheap renewable energy and our whole world is electrified instead of fossil based that's amazing i love that now imagine i was to put you into a time machine and i bring you back in time i bring you back in time to that moment where you were still maybe in university, you know, incubating the startup dream. Uh, and let's say you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger self. And you were able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? My advice would be, uh, yes, you can. Uh, because uh, I think I have uh, doubted myself for a very long time on whether I could actually be an entrepreneur. So I was circling around it for a long time. My first company was very successful, but it's a nonprofit company. So I didn't consider it a real startup. Then I worked for Rocket Internet. I was working for somebody else building a startup. Then I was the CEO of a large startup, but again, not my own company. Then I was a VC investor investing in startups, but I was an entrepreneur. So I did 
all kinds of things for 12 years from the start of my career to finally doing my own. And I think there were a lot of, I think there was self-doubt, but also uh, other people who quite openly doubted me. So some people said, well, I'm not sure if you're an entrepreneur. I'm not sure if you have the grit to get through the product market phase. And in P Capital, when I was looking at all of these other entrepreneurs, I realized that the only difference between them and me was that they were doing it already and I wasn't. And secondly, once I finally got over the hurdle and finally myself started doing it, I realized like, hell yes, I can. I mean, at the age of 23, I built a company that has by now employed thousands of consultants. I've been building initiatives either for myself or for other people for the past decade. Like, why did I doubt myself so long? Why did I listen to voices that, you know, said I couldn't do because maybe I don't fit the standard profile of a white male entrepreneur? But hell yes, I can. I don't think I am less any less competent than any other entrepreneur out there. And I think I would have wanted to give myself that sort of objective piece of self-confidence. And then maybe I would have, you know, gone through entrepreneurship, which is really my home, uh, a little bit earlier in life. That's incredible. So for the people that are listening, Jacqueline, that um, will love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Sure. You can connect uh, with me on uh, LinkedIn. I think that's probably the best way. I do get a lot of messages. So if I don't reply, be persistent. Uh, I'll get back to you always personally. There's nobody manning my LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I think. And, and obviously check out carbonequity.com if you're interested in learning more about uh, climate tech investments. We have a lot of webinars, a lot of content and blog out there. So definitely interesting to check that out. Amazing. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. It was an uh, honor to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.